Hey everybody, this is Armando Torres, and you're listening to the show before the show. And I'm Paige Wesley. And with us we have... Andre Cassetta! Yay! Yay! And we've got another great episode for you. It is the second part of Paige's series on the Branch Davidians. This one's super great. Um, it's a little more background stuff, but I don't mean that at all in a bad way. This episode is fucking hilarious, and it actually explains a lot of the origins of the group, the compound, and everything that comes before, you know, the actual Waco siege. But before we get into it, we have some news and reviews. The first news is that we have a Patreon now. Breaking pa- news. <laughs> yeah. It's only been a year. You can find out more information about our Patreon including all of the great tiers that we have by going to patreon.com slash cult podcast. Um, and then we have another five-star review. Uh, this one comes to us from Treat Yo Lady Yo. Uh, and it says, I'm obsessed. As someone who loves cults and not being super bummed out, this is the perfect podcast. You get to learn about all the insanity that cults entail while being entertained by some wickedly funny folks. Do yourself a favor and give it a listen. Sorry about the next one. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no. Yeah, like, did this person not listen to Ruby Ridge last week? (laughs) I think without any further ado, let's get into the show. Hello. Hello. For the purposes of this podcast, we define a cult as organizations that rally behind an entity or leader who espouse beliefs outside the norm, organizations that require physical or monetary sacrifice as a condition of membership, organizations in which the doctrines followed by the leaders are different than that of the followers, organizations in which isolation is encouraged either by commune living or by a policy of disconnection from outside relationships, and organizations that actively recruit new members. All cults might have some or all of these traits, and as always, these are our opinions. Thank you for tuning into Cult Podcast. I'm Paige Wesley. And I'm Armando Torres. And with us we have Andre Gazetta. Yay! Yay! And it's my wee. Yeah. Hell yeah, dude. We are kicking things off with our second episode in our series on the Branch Davidians. Last week we covered Ruby Ridge. This week, we're going to cover the origins of the Branch Davidians, which is super interesting and not necessarily covered all the time, at least not in most outlets that cover the Branch Davidians. They kind of like start with David Koresh. But to be honest, there is batshit insanity way before that. And I feel like to understand them, we need to get into it. When you say the other outlets that carry them, are you talking about like outlet malls? Like, is that where people mostly spread information about Waco? Yeah, yeah. I mean, not right now because you can't go Mm because, you know, it's basically anytime a a podcast or TV show or Netflix special or Or a ladies footlocker or a lady (laughs) footlocker or one of those ear piercing kiosks or one of those Sanrio stores, uh, whenever those things cover Waco, They usually start at what we know as the Branch Davidians, which is David Koresh and his group. But the Branch Davidians actually existed for almost 100 years before that. There were groups that existed that became the Branch Davidians that we know today. And an understanding of those groups, I think, gives us a better understanding of why 
they reacted the way that they did and why their group got to the point that it did so that we can kind of better understand why the siege happened and what these people were truly thinking and believing as that was going on. Paige, you don't have to uh, explain yourself to us. I covered the Latin Kings and was like, okay, so the history of Chicago. <laughs> Let's start with naked firefighters yeah. and go. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I started witchcraft was, let's go back to the dawn of man. I did, uh, but the river, it was important. Um, <laughs> I have been watching way too many videos on prepping. Uh, I'm getting too into it. Way too into it. Lean in, Paige. Lean into the prepping. Which part of prepping are you? Because I think prepping kind of spreads into three different groups. You have the people who learn, which is where I think you are. People who can make bread, grow things, and kind of be self-sustaining. And then you have the supply hoarders, which are basically people who stock up on all of, like, their walls are made of bullets and their toilet is made of actual toilet paper. (laughs) Or or just, like, they're, they're the ones that are buying the industrial can of nacho cheese and like stocking them three deep uh and then (laughs) they die and the the historical foods crew from the history channel shows up at their house and then eats their supplies 50 years later exactly it's just they're they're the people in the middle between two different a and e shows hoarders and doomsday preppers you know we don't know (laughs) where to put them yet but then there's a third group which i'm afraid that you're getting into which is the military prepared group which is the people (laughs) who are like i'm ready for the zombies to come and i will fight back and i'm i'm looking at you page you look like you know some jujitsu, Doc. Here's the thing. I, I do not, and that is not useful against zombies. You definitely need melee weapons, which we do have. I tricked you. It was a trick question. She's the military <laughs> kind. I got her. Here's the thing. She is holed up with a Texan, so you <gasps> know that she already has some military preparedness there. This doesn't fare well for your judgment, Paige, but it does fare well for your survival. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I yeah, no, I'm definitely in the learner phase where I'm just looking, I'm watching homesteading videos on YouTube, but then like I get to a certain point in the video where I'm like, that's not cost effective. This is stupid. And then I turn it off. Cool, 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 cool. <laughs> just remember, people don't think about this enough with log cabins, termites and carpenter ants. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I'm looking at it more of the people who are like, we built our own chicken coop out of recycled pallets it took us six months to get the pallets and you're just like (laughs) buy wood idiot like oh my god well through the power of having a ton of children to throw at your problems anything is possible (laughs) they don't even have that many kids some of them have no kids i was like why would you have a farm with no kids you have to do all the work anyway this is (laughs) too much into my brain let's get into the branch of idiots yes tell us about a different group of bearded texans that got holed up when things got bad (laughs) i i do wait has jake invested in a pair of transitional sunglasses yet or wait no transition lenses is that what yeah you you mean the the tactical shade or whatever they call yeah no he's got regular sunglasses but like he would look good in those. That's how it but starts, That's Paige. how it starts, man. <laughs> it starts with aviators. He does have aviators. But the ta- the tactical ones are the different ones. Those are the ones that are like, we sprayed the lenses with America. And like, <laughs> you know, whatever. <laughs> All right. So let's go through some of our sources. So as I mentioned, we're starting about, well, 150 years before the, sa- the siege at Mount Carmel. 
So uh, our first source is the Memoirs of William Miller by Sylvester Bliss. Uh, we've also got William Miller's Apology and Defense, which is a speech by William Miller from 1845. Um, we've got the History of the Millerite Movement from the Seventh-day Adventist Encyclopedia. We've got The King is Coming Eventually, which is an article from Christianity Today from August 8th, 2008. We have the Cambridge History of 17th Century Philosophy, 1, Volume 2. So it's like the first one. Damn, someone did her research. It's, somebody had to like pay for some JSTOR. Um, <laughs> yeah. That's a joke for anyone who does research. Uh, so we've got the Seventh-day Adventist Church Fundamental Beliefs, and that's archived from the Wayback Machine. We've also got statistics from their official site, which is also from the Wayback Machine. Um, we've also got Wayback Machine versions of Davidian.org. And we have the Ellen G. White biography by the Ellen G. White estate. And that is also retrieved in part from the Wayback Machine from the estate's website. We also have uh, our favorite, the list of people who have claimed to be Jesus. Yeah. yeah. Gotta treat yourself. If we're going to talk about the Branch Davidians, we have to talk about the Davidian Adventists. And if we're going to talk about the Davidian Adventists, we have to talk about the Seventh-day Adventists. And if we're going to talk about Seventh-day Adventists, then we have to start with Millerism. God, I hate this version of if you give a mouse a cookie. <laughs> yeah, if you give a mouse a cookie, they're going to try and use numerology to predict the end of the world to go with it. Every <laughs> goddamn time. <laughs> so today is all about how the group that we know as the Branch Davidians came to be from a group that started in the 1800s by a man named William Miller. He was a farmer. And he was a lay preacher, a self-proclaimed student of the Bible, living in northeastern New York. And if you're unfamiliar with what a lay preacher is, it's like the understudy for the pastor. But that doesn't necessarily mean that he's ordained. They may be, they may not be. It's, I would say, the equivalent of having me come speak at your church. Like, you can definitely do way worse, but, like, you could also do way better, if that makes sense. He's basically a dude that knows a ton about the Bible, but he doesn't have his own church yet. He's a god nerd. He's a god nerd, uh, but he spent intensive, like, years of study into what he believed to be the symbolic meaning of the prophecies of Daniel, on his own time. Like, nobody told him to do that. He was just like, I'm going to get really into Daniel. If you've listened to any of our uh, Speculation Zone episodes on the apocalypse, you'll know that the book of Daniel is like half apocalyptic prophecy. And people who are into the apocalypse and the end times get super, super into the book of Daniel. Well, I'm sure everybody remembers that time in middle school when they got really into Daniel and had to ask themselves some questions. <laughs> <laughs> like, damn, Daniel. Uh, so he focused specifically on Daniel chapter 8, verse 14. Oh, that's the best Daniel. You don't. Yeah. <laughs> you have no idea. Uh, so... And again, I, I be, because we did those speculation zones, I recently read Daniel in its entirety. Um, it gets weird at some points. So, unto 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. So, 
that's one verse. He's focusing on one verse completely out of context. And he refers to that as the 2300 day prophecy. So I actually have the whole passage here. Then I heard a holy one speaking and another holy one said unto him, how long until the fulfillment of the vision of the daily sacrifice, the rebellion that causes desolation and the surrender of the sanctuary and of the host to be trampled. He said to me, it will take 2,300 evenings and mornings, and then the sanctuary will be properly restored. Now, within the context of the book of Daniel, essentially, that's him asking when Israel will be free again. Yeah. You know, it, it doesn't necessarily even have anything to do with the end times. They are in a, a point of captivity, and he's asking when again they will be free. But like we've learned from Tiger King, it takes a lot longer than that to save a sanctuary. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> Miller, William Miller, believed that the cleansing of the sanctuary mentioned in Daniel represented the end times and essentially Earth's destruction by fire during the second coming. There's no biblical basis for this, but that's what he believed. And he used what's called the year-day method of prophetic interpretation, which is bullshit but he <laughs> used it essentially it means that you equate one year to a day mentioned in the bible and it comes from a passage where it's mentioned that god's timing is different than our timing and the passage actually says a day is unto a thousand years so i don't know even where they got the whole year equals a day nonsense but that's what they went with it's good to know that we have Dog years and God years. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. dog years and God there's, years. There's three ways to judge. It's dog, human, and God. <laughs> this is also a case where... So that verse plays into a lot of different places in the Bible. And it's a very vague verse. And so in the verse itself, it's talking about like, no one knows the day or the time that the end times are going to come. Ironic. You know, that he's going to use it to calculate the end times. But... Some people actually use this in reference to the book of Genesis in the creation myth, where it says that God created the world in seven days. Well, if a day is unto a thousand years, that's where a lot of people get that six to seven thousand year number that you may hear. A lot of people will also use that as a rationale for like, maybe God used evolution and we don't know what God's timing is. So he said seven days, but who knows? God was alone for seven days and lost track of time. We can all get that right now, I oh, feel 100%. like. Oh, 100%. A 100%. Yeah. Three days into quarantine, I was like, it's June. I don't care anymore. I don't care what anyone <laughs> says. All this to say that it's a verse that gets frequently taken out of context and applied willy-nilly whenever it's convenient to people, which is not great theology <laughs> or science. Um, so... He used this to try and apply it to numerology to determine when the end times would come. He actually did his history research and determined that Daniel would have been in the king of Persia's kingdom right around 457 BC. Or actually that would have been a little bit after. Uh, he believes that 457 BC was when Artaxerxes I of Persia decreed to rebuild Jerusalem, which is a thing that happened. So he believed that the 2300 slash 2300 year 
period started at that point. So his calculations basically said that this period would end at about 1843. In September of 1822, when he kind of made these calculations, um, he wrote them out in a 20-point document saying, and I quote, I believe that the second coming of Jesus Christ is near, even at the door, even within 21 years, on or before 1843. This document actually kind of remained private for a lot of years because unlike a lot of the people that we cover on this show and unlike some of the people who go on American Idol when they shouldn't, he kept this shit to himself. (laughs) (laughs) It's also one of the things he's doing differently is I think this may have been the first time that somebody was willing to show at least anybody their math on the subject like normally there's not a 20 point document there's him going well it's because god came to me in a dream as a fart and i was like i know what you're saying buddy yeah exactly this is a dude that you know has a bunch of red you know yarn on a wall but he like he's basing it off what he believes is evidence that evidence is wrong and nonsense but he still looked for it i guess we give him credit for that yeah he should have done what the rest of us did in math class, which is check the answer in the back of the book and fake it to make it look like you did the math. I think my favorite thing is that he, like, discovered this and then was just like, oh, shit, the world's going to end in 20 years. I'll just keep this to myself. Just like, <laughs> <laughs> the people can't know. You know, it's, it's like when our government finds aliens. They're like, it's better if we keep this under wraps. I do want to save humanity, but American Idol is on tonight. <laughs> now, he did eventually share his views, but first he tested it out with a few of his friends in private and to some of his acquaintances that were essentially pastors or ministers. His friends, unlike the people on American Idol, did the right thing and told him his dreams were bad and he should keep them to himself. <laughs> So they're the, what's Simon Cowell of this story? They're the Simon Cowell of this story where they're like, your math is bad and you should feel bad. Your math's a bloody idiot, right? Yeah. My teeth are bad. Ah, but not anymore. (laughs) My nipples poke through every shirt I own. I'm angry because I haven't drank anything except for Coca-Cola in 30 years. (laughs) I'm angry, but I'm also the only one who understands roast jokes. Uh, (laughs) Shouts out to Alex Hooper. What up, Alex Hooper? Now, people who heard his ideas were kind of like, nah, mm -mm, this sounds like bullshit. But then he started lecturing. And according to him, his first lecture was in Dresden, New York, about 18 miles away from his home. And it was in August 1831. Although a lot of reports from the time say 1833 and the version we have that says 1831 is like his memoirs, but like there's official documents from the time that are like it was probably 1833. Why are you surprised? He's already proven that he gets years wrong a lot. (laughs) Yeah, it was like his math is just bad all around. (laughs) Um, Now in 1832, and this is why I kind of believe 1833 a little bit more in 1832 he submitted 16 different articles to a essentially christian newspaper called the vermont telegraph which by the way there's a lot of christian newspapers in this story and 
I don't know if those still exist, but they definitely don't come to my neighborhood. <laughs> Christian newspapers, by the way, my understanding uh, of them comes from um, Cyrus Teed, the the guy, the Florida cult that put him uh, in the bathtub when he died. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So they had a Christian newspaper, or they called it a Christian newspaper, but it was less of a newspaper and more of the news just being, hey, there's a god. Yeah, and and that's essentially kind of what this is, too. And this is around that same time. This is only a couple years after that. Um, so then they're more like pamphlets and less like newspapers, but they're still called newspapers. Is it that? Is that the same thing? Kind of, it's it's more than a pamphlet because there's articles. I think of it more like a magazine. Like you're not ordering it unless you're super into to Jesus. Yeah, right? it's like Centaur's Monthly. Yeah, it's I, Christianity Today is probably the closest we have to it now. God, I wish I could stop receiving Centaur's Monthly. <laughs> the worst part is they don't even come by post office. Just a giant Amponio Bandera shows up at your house and he goes, mail, and then throws it. <laughs> Best part about that magazine is how sweaty it is <laughs> when it gets here. Now, uh, he submitted 16 articles to the Vermont Telegraph. Um, the first one was published May 15th of 1832, and people started to take notice. Now, all of these articles were about his math and his belief that the end time was coming. So he started to get flooded with letters of people who were like, I believe you. And so he decided at that point to launch a lecture tour. I believe you. I'm also bad at math, but I'm willing to band together. Yeah, he's like the Alex Jones of his time where he's like, I'm yelling nonsense. And most people are like, that's ridiculous. But then like a handful of people are like, I don't know. He makes a lot of sense. I mean, what if the frogs did turn gay? And you're just like, what? Yeah, it's, it's that. Um, Bad at math and willing to band together is pretty much the synopsis to the movie Breakfast Club, by the way. (laughs) That's that's true. Now all he needs to do is start selling protein powder, and it's like the full package. Um, Drink up, Johnny! In 1834, he was unable to comply with the amount of requests for him to speak. So he literally, within a year, is so busy and so popular that he decides to write a book. It's only about 64 pages long. He describes it as a tract, which would be closer to a pamphlet. But a 64-page pamphlet is basically a book at that point. Yeah, this is another thing that they do in this time where, like, again, with Cyrus Teed, he wrote a book, but he called it a pamphlet. And I was like, I don't think you guys understood what to call things with words on them back then. Yeah, exactly. I also love that he got famous the way that Joe Exotic got famous, which is just like be a crazy person and then <laughs> take speaking engagements. Because you will attract other crazy people. Yeah. A little bit of math gets a big amount of math. <laughs> <laughs> now, in 1840, or by 1840, I should say, Millerism, as it was called. God, Millerism sounds like a frat boy religion based around crushing cans of Miller Lite. <laughs> to be honest, that would be less detrimental to society as a whole. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it had started as kind of a weird regional movement in the Northeast, but now it was a national campaign. He had followers in every state. And a key figure in that was a man named Joshua Vaughn Himes, who was 
the pastor of the Chardon Street Chapel in Boston, and he had his own publishing company. So even though he didn't fully agree with Miller's ideas, at least not until about 1842, he published another newspaper essentially another christian newspaper called signs of the times uh great name for a newspaper better name for a prince album (laughs) (laughs) and even though he didn't fully buy into the ideas he published articles and writings about miller's ideas in his paper um as soon as 1840 so like for two years he was publishing stuff and being like i mean it's not my thing but and then eventually he kind of like gets into it does he start with just being like it's what sells the papers see i i don't even think they're selling them i think they're giving them away for free and to be honest his paper signs of the times continues to be published by the seventh day adventist church as like a magazine Hmm. now like now they're calling it a magazine which is pretty much was what it was to begin with um but people read his paper and ran with it. They started publishing those same articles and like reposting them in tons of papers all over the country. So it's kind of like if you have a tweet that goes viral, that's what's happening to this dude, except it's by paper. So despite people following him and tons of people rallying around the country to believe in his ideas, he never set an exact date for the second coming. But people were getting anxious and people wanted to know, especially because it was 1842 and he had narrowed the time down to sometime in the year 1843. And so people are like, that's next year. We need to fucking know about it. So he actually said in response to this, my principles in brief are that Jesus Christ will come again to this earth cleanse, purify, and take possession of the same with all the saints sometime between March 21st, 1843 and March 21st, 1844. Ooh. March 21st, 1844 passed and nothing happened. But still, the majority of his followers stayed with him. On the 25th, he wrote to Joshua Himes, the pastor who was publishing a lot of his articles, saying, I am still looking for the dear Savior. The time, as I have calculated, is now filled up, and I expect every moment to see the Savior descend from heaven. I have now nothing to look for but this glorious hope. If you remember our episode on cognitive dissonance, this is the same thing that happened there, where the prophecy didn't happen, but people were so devoted to it and had put their reputation on the line for this prophecy that they basically couldn't stop believing in it, if that makes sense. Here's the thing, guys. I forgot to carry the one and multiply by the square root of pi, so it's actually about a thousand years in the future, but uh, my bad. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Now, in part, the reason that they kind of survived this period is because they had never set a specific exact date. They were like, eh, it's probably between these two dates or these two dates, which allowed for smaller errors in their date and time, which is basically rule 101 of doomsday cults. Never set an end date because then you have to make that end date happen. A few months later, well, almost a year later, February 28th of 1845, Miller wrote, 
If Christ comes as we expect, we will sing the song of victory soon. If not, we will watch, pray, and preach until he comes, for soon our time and all prophetic days will have been filled. Which basically means, like, he's coming soon, but if he doesn't, he's still coming soon, so believe it. Where it's basically like, maybe not now, but soon, and whenever it is, that's when it is. Yeah, it's like when you go out on a date with a guy and he goes, yeah, we should hang out again soon. And then you never hear from him again. Like Jesus left this message on red. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So his followers talked about it and they were like, now we're going to set a new date. So in part led by Joshua Himes, the guy with the newspaper, they set a new date for April 18th, 1844, which was only a couple weeks after the original end date but two days short of a cooler date true uh they based this date on what they called a karite jewish calendar as opposed to the rabbinic jewish calendar which again is just white people stealing other people's shit and making numerology strikes again because that date came and went and nothing happened so in august that year they decided to change the date again. A man named Samuel S. Snow presented a message that became known as, quote, the seven-month message or the true midnight cry, where he used scriptural typography, which I did some investigation into because I'd never heard of it. But it seems like a bit of a stretch. Essentially, it's the idea that all biblical figures are types or anti-types of Jesus which in some bullshit way changes the goalposts for this theory. So he presented his conclusion that Christ would return on the 10th day of the 7th month of that year, meaning July 10th, 1844, which was a month before that date. So they went back to the calendar And they then determined that to be October, because in one Jewish calendar, July was not the seventh month, October was. So October 22nd, 1844 is what they determined to be the day that the seventh month month message would come. And it spread like wildfire through pretty much everybody who had believed in Miller's ideas. But again, no rapture happened. At this point, people were starting to lose faith in all of this numbers business. They liked some of the other aspects of Miller's teachings because as he lectured, he couldn't do hour-long lectures just on his math. He had to keep coming up with more and more shit. But again, he was a lay preacher, so it was mostly just his theories or versions of other established theories that he was padding his time with. So people just showed up to listen to an hour of math and Bible fan fiction. Yes, 100%. That's exactly what this is. This sounds awful. Yes. I mean, it sounds great for three people exactly, and it sounds like you might be one of them, Andre. Well, here's the thing is I think that something tricky to remember is that the Bible is a book with a lot of stuff in it. And almost any time a pastor or a priest goes up to the pulpit and interprets it, they can stray pretty easily beyond what the intended meaning was because, A, they're always reading an interpretation. Very few of them are reading it in the original language it was written. And, B, 
every person is different and they're going to interpret this book differently. And so like people can stray further and further. And I've been to church services where people stray very far from the intended message, but followers are willing to go with them because there's something there that they can hold on to. Yeah. Well, and I think it also depends on the kind of service you're at. Like I really personally prefer services where you look at a piece of scripture and you're kind of like, well, what could this mean for us today? You know, not trying to necessarily layer additional meaning over it, but just like, hey, if we look at this story as written, what can we learn about our day-to-day lives? You know, how can this help us throughout the week or whatever? Whenever you get into like, it means exactly this and that means this and this doctrine and the extrapolation is where things get a little scary. Right, definitely. I really like your description of uh, preachers as basically DJs putting their own spin on a hot new mix. I mean, in some cases, yeah. Definitely in this guy's case, for sure. Drop the Jesus. Now, in the midst of this, people who liked some of Miller's theories but weren't huge fans of his math decided to kind of form their own groups. Uh, one of these offshoots was led by a man named he- Hiram Hiram Edson. Uh, he learned from Miller's mistakes, though, so he never set an end date. He called his group the Adventists. Basically, they were awaiting the advent of Christ's return, and they continued to believe that the second coming of Christ was basically coming at any time, uh, but they didn't set a date on it. Um, they actually cite that same passage that's like, no one knows the date or the time. (laughs) So they didn't set a time, but they were like, it's definitely happening in like two seconds. But like, now that I've said two seconds, like, you know, no one knows the date or the time. So they took an interpretation that meant don't believe somebody who says they know when the end time's coming and they twisted it to be like, we know the end time's coming. We just don't know exactly when it is. That is exactly right. Dude, whoa, that is some Olympic style mental gymnastics there. Yeah. To be fair, that's most modern Christianity would ascribe to that version, that kind of belief about the end times of like, It could be any minute, but we don't know when, so you just kind of got to go on living, you know? This is like when people have been engaged for, like, three years, and then they're like, no, save the date, but, like, soon. And you're like... (laughs) You're like, how soon, really? (laughs) Yeah, but, like, when, though? You know what I just realized is people who live uh, on the West Coast have... If they believe in this, they they live this twice because we also have the big one thing coming. Oh, yeah. So you, so you just have two things where it's like, the math says it's coming. We just don't know when. It could be in a thousand years or never. So or- start packing your walls with bullets now. <laughs> start pumping out those babies. Now, for about 20 years, their group consisted of kind of just a small loosely connected group of people who came from a lot of different churches but had followed Miller's doctrine and their primary means of keeping in touch was through a man named James White's periodical again a Christian newspaper called the Advent Review and Sabbath Herald he advocated for an additional layer of rules on their group specifically he also interpreting Daniel 8, 14, 
he believed that since 1844, God has been reviewing and judging humans to determine who gets into heaven. And this was the cleansing of the temple that he was referring to, not the end of the world. So he believed that this judgment would eventually give them the 144,000 that allegedly are the saints at the end times. Now, one of their more unique doctrines that he published in this paper is something called conditional immortality. It's also known as annihilationism. And this is the belief that whoever doesn't get into heaven, so if you're not one of the 144,000, you're just fucking destroyed. You don't live in hell. You don't have any immortality at all. You just ceased to exist. So essentially, the 144,000 are the people that stand with Christ at the end times. They could be people born at any time. This would posit that they're born or live from 1844 onward. What they're basically saying is that everyone who has lived from 1844 to present day and through the future until Christ comes back is being judged. And only the best of the best of the best, basically the dean's list of people living during that time, the top 144,000 will stand with Christ at the end times and everyone else just fucking dies and just never comes back. It doesn't become anything dust to the wind i want to see the jean-claude van damme movie where he has to kick his way into heaven by becoming one of the 144,000, and it's just like the whole thing is just like an 80s montage of like gotta be the best to heaven it's just like a a kumite to get into heaven this is the battles of the death Well, it's great because now we've just flipped this whole thing 180 and God is Simon Cowell now. Yeah, exactly. Watching over us in the weirdest episode of Earth's Got Talent or whatever. Yeah. And essentially what they base this on, they basically say that humans were never meant to be immortal at all. And God is just making an exception for that group. And so you have to be... At the top of God's dean list. You have to be at the top of God's honor roll to make it into heaven. God, what a bumper sticker to have for your car. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, my kid got into heaven. <laughs> my kid is on the honor roll at God. Uh, I would say that these guys are probably, I mean, no offense to the poor Jehovah's Witnesses, but like everyone who's getting into heaven probably italian because they always know a guy you know what i'm saying (laughs) i was gonna say jehovah's witnesses have a very similar doctrine (laughs) and it centers on that same number they also um the adventists were also uh premillennialists which doesn't refer to our calendar millennium but rather It's the idea that Christ will return and a thousand years of peace will follow. So basically, in their minds, Christ comes back, takes the dean's list back to his place, murders everyone else, and then they live for a thousand years of peace. Are we sure that premillennial doesn't mean that just Gen Xers are the ones that get into heaven? I mean, if you ask them, I think they'd say that. I mean, yeah. They want heaven to just be everyone standing around being like, do you guys remember Morrissey? <laughs> heaven, <laughs> heaven is a flannel shirt. Um, <laughs> Take that, mom. Because it's soft and comforting. Oh, God. I'm almost a Gen Xer. <laughs> the fact that you're like, mom, and then me, similar camps. 
God damn, damn it. I fucking okay. love Morrissey, though. I can't wait to get to heaven. <laughs> yeah, you're Mexican. We know. <laughs> <laughs> so as the group began to solidify their beliefs, leaders began to rise up through the ranks, most notably a woman named Ellen Gould White. And the reason she rose to prominence in the group is because she had fucking visions. Gabagould. Oof. Visions like in her head? Yes. Or like she was just the only one that could see? No, no, no. In her head, uh, she claimed to be a prophet, which, to be honest, that's going to happen a lot in this series. And I want to hearken back to a question that you had during one of our apocalypse speculation zones where you were kind of curious about the difference between claiming to be Jesus versus claiming to be a prophet. In our case here, Jesus is the son of God. No one's claimed to be him yet. Prophets are people who can tell the future, which is what she's claiming to be, which to be honest is your best bet if you want people to follow you. Prophets are considered to be like the mouthpiece of God. So the the whole idea of a prophet is that they have a direct relationship with God and that they speak for God. They're like an ambassador. Yeah. Mm-hmm. When you're trying to impress somebody in high school, don't tell them you're related to the drummer from Slipknot. Tell them you know the drummer from Slipknot. It's way less crazy than claiming to be Jesus himself, but it gives you the prestige of knowing Jesus. And the way I think about it is whenever, like, if I'm like, yeah, I'm a comedian and people are like, that's cool. But if I'm like, I know Jeff Ross, they're like, what, really? Like, it's that, <laughs> di- like, he doesn't even have to be here. He doesn't even know about it. And it has instantly given me more credit with people. Yeah, I talked to Bieber, no big deal. <laughs> I have a, we all have kind of a, a, a mutual friend, um, Malcolm Hatchett. He's a comedian and he, uh, he and I are, are, you know, we're pretty chummy. We're not like the best of friends, but you know, we talk to each other every time we see each other. I like him. He's a cool dude. Um, he blew up on the internet and then, uh, I posted a picture on Instagram of me and Andrea and he liked it because again, we're just friends on, you know, yeah, on a friendly a, level. He's a nice guy. Three different people texted me from all across the country to be like, dude, Malcolm Hatchett just like your picture of you and your girlfriend together. <laughs> and they're like trying to piece it out. The, my friend Brad from Canada was like, I think Malcolm Hatchett's trying to steal your girl. <laughs> That's kind of like I have I have a, a friend who doesn't listen to our show, which is fine because, mm-hmm. you know, me in person. So you get enough of this. But somebody in his office does. And so every once in a while he'll text me and be like, yo, the girl in my office like has your picture at her desk. (laughs) (laughs) Which if that's you, thank you so much. Thank you for listening. We love you. Thank you. Thank you so much. That's not even because she likes the podcast. It's just because you cute as hell, dog. (laughs) Aww. (laughs) If that's you, thank you. Um, So... um, Essentially, Ellen claims to be a prophet and has visions, and her husband kind of wrote about her visions and the physical characteristics that would occur when she was having a vision, and I would like to take you through those physical characteristics now. Yes, please. Number one, right when she was about to have a vision, she would shout, Glory, glory, glory. Uh, eventually, just until the vision happened. Oh my God, uh, I'm about to vision. Yeah. 
Oh my God, I'm going to glory, glory, glory. <laughs> so after this, number two, she would feel very, very faint as if she didn't have any strength, like she was going to pass out. But then she would instantly be filled with superhuman strength, oh, sometimes God. rising to her feet and walking around. Uh, she would wave her hands and arms. She would make head gestures that he described as free and graceful. Um, but no one could move her, basically, is what he would say. Is She'd like have her arms outstretched and then people like couldn't push her hands down. One of the things that they had as proof was that she held her parents' 18-pound family Bible. Which, by the way, that's a massive Bible. <laughs> but also, not that bad. It's so that they could fit all the director's commentary in there. <laughs> yeah, that's a Bible that weighs more than most babies. Uh, and she had it outstretched in her left hand for half an hour. Okay. Which just means, like, she's been doing arm day. Uh, he says she weighed 80 pounds at the time. Jesus. I'm like, that, I don't know. This seems suspect. I love his description of he's just like, yeah, so my wife, she comes and then she turns into one hell of a linebacker. It's wild. <laughs> <laughs> Glory. Um, so number three, she allegedly didn't breathe during the entire period that she was having a vision, which would be anywhere from 15 minutes to three hours. But supposedly she still had a pulse. Hold the vision in, bro. Hold it in your chest. <laughs> it gets you higher when you hold the vision in, fool. That's like when you do a breath holding contest with your friend, but you're low key breathing through your nose the whole time. Like, what were you doing in Wisconsin that you had to do breath holding competitions? <laughs> yeah, we're doing a breath holding competition. Then we're gonna have a cow watching marathon. Shut up! We're not allowed to do. We didn't have cable. Okay. <laughs> Get out of here! I didn't have cable either. I didn't have to hold my breath for fun. No. You didn't have cable, but you could just go outside and watch high-speed chases and robberies. That's true. I did grow up in Los Angeles. I, yeah, my, my world is more interesting. Back in my day, we had to hold our breath and watch grass grow. Yeah. <laughs> What's grass? Shut up. You, you of all people know what grass is, you, you choking idiot. <laughs> all right. Uh... In addition to not breathing, her eyes would be completely open without blinking. What? Yes. He said that she would just be completely unconscious about everything else happening in the room around her. Basically, like she was having an out-of-body experience. When she came out of the vision, she would have a long sigh, and then she would spell out D-A-R-K, and then go limp. Oh, Like, God. pass out. Which is fucking terrifying. Like... That belongs in a paranormal activity film. Yeah. I know. Yeah, I thought you were going to spell out D's nuts. I don't know why. But <laughs> we started and I was like, ah, oh, Paige, got you. She spell out D-E-Z. No, that's Dez's nuts. <laughs> Dez's nuts. Don't touch. She wants them for her lunch break. Well, I don't know about you, but anytime D's nuts have a vision, they do go limp after. <laughs> um, that's step one. I love that Armando is planning what would happen if he were to be a demon possessing people. Like, if Armando were to possess someone, these are the hijinks he would pull. 
Oh yeah, just make them. Essentially, I've made them come. I've made them strong, and then I get them real high. <laughs> get them nice and feisty. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Now, one of the other women who knew her uh, basically said that it would just be calm and quiet the entire time, so people would just watch her flip out what the <laughs> like, fuck? for like three hours at a time, and then write everything she said down. Yeah, after the second time, we started selling tickets, made a lot of money. <laughs> right? She lifted a car. They won't have invented yet, eh? Hey? <laughs> now, after James White had established the Sabbath doctrine through his paper. Their group became known as the Seventh-day Adventist because they had the Sabbath on the seventh day. And when her visions started to take the notice of the people around her, they started publishing her visions in their local papers. So they became widely circulated throughout everyone who proclaimed themselves to be a Seventh-day Adventist at the time. And I read through some of her visions, and a lot of them are just kind of rehashing Bible stuff or kind of vague end timesy things. There's not a lot of information in them. It's a lot of flowery language, but not a lot of actionable items. Is this a Christian newspaper's version of a horoscope? Is that what she's it, doing? <laughs> this is Christian newsies. I'm sorry there's not more music. <laughs> I just yeah, because it's just very like vague, and you know it could fit for everyone. So that's just where my mind goes. It's just like yeah, yeah, the end times will happen on a day, maybe. And it will, and she'd be like the clouds and the trumpets and all of these things, and you're like, that sounds cool. When's it happening? And she's just like, oh, you know, <laughs> eventually. Like, here's the weird thing. Most of the things that she's talking about were in line with Seventh-day Adventist theology, with the exception of what's called Trinitarian theology, which is basically the belief that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are three different people. Um, they are both different and one at the same time. Talk about a split personality. Hey, oh. hey. Now, Ellen basically believed that there was just one guy she's like no no no, i've seen him it's just one dude and jesus is a separate dude but they're not like the same dude you guys are all wrong so a lot of seventh day adventist uh, denominations kind of within their group um would align with trinitarian theology she's one of the few outliers that's like nah it's one dude and they still really liked her visions, though, so they publish them and they distribute them even now in, like, book form. And then when people are like, hey, she says God's only, like, one person, they're just kind of like, shh, <laughs> Quiet, sweet baby. Sleep. Sleep. Uh, <laughs> <so> <laughs> you Do like, <laughs> questions about God. You sound like Joe Exotic whispering to his tigers at night. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. And... At that point, everything went on pretty normally until a guy named Victor Hutef came along. Oh, Hutef is that? <laughs> All right. I want to hate it, but that's pretty good. Hutef is that? God damn it. If that's not an episode title. Oh, oh boy. Man. 
So Victor Hutef was born in Ryakovo, Eastern Rumelia, which is modern day Bulgaria. As a child, he was actually raised in the Bulgarian Orthodox Church, which is fairly similar-ish to the Russian Orthodox religion. Um, as a young man, he was basically a mercantile trader. And they said young man, and I mean like teenager. Uh, in 1907, he and his brothers emigrated to the United States after, according to him, a mob had taken up arms against his family and forced them onto a boat. God, I hate it when that happens. Man, I know. not again. And it is worth noting that he's leaving right before World War One, and that part of Europe was not doing great at the time. I think it's more likely that they probably immigrated to find a better life and he wanted to make his story sound more interesting, but I cannot prove that. It was not great economically for a lot of people. And yeah. it's something that in the U.S. we don't always pay attention to because it wasn't happening to us, uh, but it was kind of an issue at the time. Can't hear you over these stacks, baby. And then we just <laughs> rifle through money. Rifle through money with, with that, that means nothing. It's yes. all meaningless. Oh, God. Just paper, baby. He would occasionally return to visit his family, even as an adult. Um, although most of them eventually emigrated to the U.S., they arrived in the United States basically completely poor, penniless. Um, but he ended up working as a hotelier, which is basically he had a hotel uh, and a grocery store in Illinois in 1919. Um, and that same year, he joined the Seventh-day Adventist Church. So at that point, he was only in his early 20s or so. Um, in the midst of the Roaring Twenties and Prohibition, etc., he journeyed west to California to be closer to other Seventh-day Adventist communities, like one called Loma Linda, which was near modern-day Los Angeles. And he took a job as a salesman for Maytag, before Sears bought Maytag, basically, selling washing machines and other household appliances. He then saved up enough money to start his own company, which actually manufactured wholesome confectionery candies. Ooh. He referred to them as health sweets. Oh. Oh, that's not real. Um, <laughs> <laughs> nothing that tastes good is good for you. Uh, that's not true. Vegetables are kind of good for you. Whatever. What you, uh, we're not on Sesame Street. Don't lie to them. You said taste good. In the 1920s, as a strict Seventh-day Adventist, he decided that he was going to start teaching Sunday school, or Sabbath school, as they called it. And he actually started teaching in Exposition Park in Los Angeles. Much like William Miller, he was super interested in the Bible and studied it a lot, but no one told him to. And he didn't necessarily follow what other people said. He just kind of figured stuff out for himself. And in addition to getting super into the Bible, he got super into the writings of Ellen G. White and her visions. Suddenly, his Bible study classes at church lasted way longer and became way more complex. And they started attracting really large groups of Adventists every week. And his particular focus became the scriptures of Isaiah, which is also a book of prophecy. Specifically, he was looking at chapters 54 to 66. 
And a lot of that is the coming of the Messiah and the end times, but again, vague and open to interpretation. He encountered opposition to this from the rest of the Seventh-day Adventists, where they were like, hey, uh, that's not exactly how we believe that's going to happen. And he's like, no, no, I'm one of you guys, see? I'm super <laughs> into it. And eventually, he and his entire Bible class were disfellowshipped. They were basically disowned by the church. Damn. And, damn. Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess that is what's happening. They got damned. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But Hutef wasn't done. He moved his class of about 50 or so students to a house across the street from the church. <laughs> and, he, and he continued to teach and continued to identify as a Seventh-day Adventist. And he tried to in, basically write to other churches locally and throughout California about his findings, basically saying that they were a continuation of Revelation so that he was basically writing the story that like Revelation thought was too dark to tell or something. <laughs> <laughs> it's the remix of Revelations. And in 1929, he completed his writings and submitted them in the form of a book called The Shepherd's Rod. Ooh, buddy. That sounds like someone is carving out porno. It, it sound, it, well, it sounds like either a biblical or Christmas-themed porno. <laughs> they brought gifts of gold, frankincense, and this dick. Oh, shit. <laughs> Yikes. Uh, so he wrote the shepherd's rod. And <laughs> now it's just, sorry, it just sounds like what? an erotic novel about a sheep herder. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He's spent too much time alone with the sheep. I don't like it. This is uncomfortable. And essentially, he was just talking more and more about the 144,000. But he was basically bringing in new rules and new ways to think about it. And essentially pulling in a bunch of scripture that didn't necessarily apply. So he brought in a verse from Micah 6, 9. That's how he got the name for his book. And that verse uh, in King James was, The Lord's voice crieth unto the city, and the man of wisdom shall see thy name. Hear ye the rod, and who hath appointed it? Damn. See, the shepherd's rod is great at pulling in, but it's terrible at pulling out. Oh, God. <laughs> now, Victor held pretty similar views to Ellen White, who the Seventh-day Adventists love. And I think he thought that they would embrace him as another prophet. So he didn't directly call himself a prophet, but I think he was hoping other people would. <laughs> Because he just referred to his work as, quote unquote, a reformation. But if people asked him, is God telling you these things? He was like, yeah, totally. Uh, I'm here to bring the very last message to the Seventh-day Adventists so that they believe the truth. So he felt that it was his duty to basically convert the church to be a more churchy church. If you want to think of it that way. So he's the reverse Weishaupt in the, the fucking uh, Illuminati episodes where he's like 
the reverse of I want to make the church less church. He's like, I got to infiltrate the church and change it from within to make it more about God. Right. And the Seventh-day Adventists were like, calm down and go away. God nerd. <laughs> nerd. Yeah, he's trying to use his rod for to create change. So I get that. Ugh. As long as he doesn't try to shear the shepherd's rod, because that's how you nick the bowels. Oh, <laughs> now he felt like his group needed a place where they could live out their beliefs in peace and so they went to a section of land right outside modern day waco texas and built what is now referred to as the mount carmel center Uh, colloquially to the people around them and to the seventh day adventist church at large they were referred to as the rod oh it's Oof. such a bad name. It's a terrible name. I will say something that I've noticed about people that are very religious is that they fail to see when they're using horrific innuendos because their mind is just like, no, but like, why would your mind even go there? Right. <laughs> Remember, leave space for Jesus because Jesus needs to come on in you. You know what I'm saying, folks? Come on, kids, sing it with me. Jesus needs to come on in ya. Oh, God. Why are you laughing? Why is everyone (laughs) laughing at me? My institution of work uh, has done a series of windows of priests anointing young men who are kneeling in front of them. You showed me these photos. But it's from a front pose. So it looks very bad. Real bad. It's real bad. And then when you think that an entire committee of church people approved that and then a designer made it and then someone hand painted it and then someone put it together and there's thousands of hours of work of a window that is supposed to be a boy kneeling for a sacrament, but it looks like he's kneeling for other bad reasons. Yeah. Yikes. Now, he he basically from this point, from the 20s through the 30s, ran the community kind of like a commune and fairly peacefully. And he would occasionally go back to visit his family in Bulgaria in the late 1930s. Now as an American citizen. But once again, he was run out of his native land, allegedly at the time by the Bulgarian National Socialist move- Movement, which objected to his religious ideas. So essentially, everyone who hears his religious ideas are just like, get out. Go. <laughs> Bye. So he went back to Texas and continued to lead the group all the way through the mid-50s until he died of heart failure at Hillcrest Hospital in Waco, Texas, February 5th, 1955. At that point, the group was without a leader. But essentially, they kind of just went with whoever claimed to have prophecy at the time. They changed hands a few times until a couple, Ben and Lois Roden, took over. And things were pretty uneventful up until Ben Roden died in the late 70s. And everyone was devastated because he had told them he would live forever. (laughs) (laughs) Ruh-roh. Oops. And in the power vacuum, Lois, his wife, took over and became the prophet, claiming that the voice of God had transferred from Ben into her, Because, according to their doctrine, all leaders must be chosen by God and must be a prophet. So, 
she took over the group. But Lois was a little questionable. She liked fancy cars and shoes, and the group had been pretty austere. They're a commune. They were largely an agrarian community where they kind of farmed and ate their own stuff. Essentially, they were preppers before being preppers was cool. They just kind of lived on a farm. And families had lived there for, at this point, decades. But Lois really liked power. And she held on to that power until a few years later in 1981 when a young man named Vernon Wayne Howell walked onto their compound. And that's where we're going to end episode two. Whoa! Revenge of the Rod! Revenge of the Rod. Yeah, I have enjoyed hearing uh, all your stories about a man oblivious to his rod, um, a man who is in a constant state of Miller time, um, and then apparently the second most successful white Ellen. Yes, yeah, definitely. And it's pretty interesting that for as insanely white as the story is, um, they do become a fairly diverse group eventually, which we'll get into it in the next episode as to kind of why that happens. But up until 1981, they were kind of peaceful and stayed out of everybody's way. Like, they were definitely constantly believing that the end times were going to come, and that's why they needed to grow more tomatoes, I guess. But, like... (laughs) (laughs) Paige, how dare you judge them? That's your exact plan. That is my plan. They're delicious. Um, (laughs) But essentially, they weren't in anybody's way. And a lot of that changes in 1981. But I, I thought that was like in order to understand where things go, I thought it was pretty interested to see interesting to see where things came from. I think it was really great. I've talked with a surprising number of people that were under the impression that, you know, um that the group was founded by that's, David Correct. That's what I always thought growing up. Because like the way people talk about it, I was like, Oh, it's like his thing. That's like his whole deal. Well, I think what we'll kind of see as we go through the next episode is that he takes what is an existing group and really, really turns it into something completely different and something way more sinister and something very, very, very dark. Yeah, I think what you'll kind of see through his story is that he kind of embodies uh, in a lot of different ways this kind of parasite role of just like latching on to other things, sucking away and then kind of ruining them from the inside a lot. Yeah, much like a shepherd's rod. Um, oh, God. <laughs> I mean, if you're putting a wooden rod inside you, you can guarantee that some things are at least going to get splinters, if not ruined. <laughs> oh, no. It's it's an interesting story. We're going to go through his childhood and kind of see what kind of contributes to him being the type of person that he is. Um, because I feel like there's a lot of interesting things that happened to him before he even gets to Mount Carmel. Um, But again, this was a thing where Mount Carmel is the location of where the siege happens. And a lot of people, I think, thought that he dragged everybody there. That's not the case. He came there. They were already there. He does end up building a lot of new buildings and things there, which we'll go over in the next episode. But he comes into a group and kind of infects it and takes over. Um, a lot of like what Jim Jones tried to do to Father Divine's flock after Father Divine passed away. 
And I think as I've gone through this and listened to like eight hours of survivor testimony, um, he's a lot more like Jim Jones than anyone has ever kind of given him credit for. And he's a frightening evil man. So yeah, I can't wait. He's a bad fucking dude. <laughs> That's it for today. Uh, by the way, the world is ending on Wednesday. Oh no, Pips, <laughs> don't say it. We could be wrong. <laughs> but she didn't say which that- Wednesday. Oh. Oh. baby. Never set a date or a time. Hey, everybody. Our episode this week is sponsored by Loopholes. Do you want to get out of hanging out with somebody? Um, You can't anymore because of the quarantine. Are you tired of doing that thing? There's a way around it, and we'll get it for you. Loopholes, come to us when you're too scared of people hating you. Vague language. That's the key. Mm-hmm. <laughs> This episode is sponsored by Christian Newspapers. Do you want to hear other people's opinions about God, but you don't like listening? Try reading. <laughs> <laughs> On The Real, our episode is sponsored by our wonderful, beautiful Patreon donors. Uh, every week, we give a shout out to a Patreon donor, and you too can have this happen to you by donating to our $5 tier. Why? Why do you want this to happen to you? I don't know, but people keep st- wanting it. <laughs> um, you can find that at patreon.com slash cult podcast. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Big Cheese, a.k.a. the hatchet in Paige's tits. Big I- Cheese sounds like a corporation that controls <laughs> people's consumption of cheese. Look into it. <laughs> Big Cheese. Follow the Parmesan. <laughs> Hallie Breton. <Dang>. Okay. <laughs> it took so long for me to find that pun. It was not worth it. I'm so sorry. Well, that's just the way the feta crumbles. Uh, hey. oh. <laughs> I also, I do like this idea that the hatchet in Paige's hatchet tits is sentient because when we do pitch this as a cartoon to what I'm sure will eventually happened the juggalo tv network oh my god yes i can't call me i can't wait to have your sidekick be the hatchet in your tits or just a hatchet where instead of the actual hatchet top it's just like a triangle of cheese so it's not good for cutting anything down but it's great for cutting your hunger as a snack yeah you can have a little hatchet of cheese as a treat (laughs) as a tit treat this one, like I said, goes out uh, to Big Cheese. Thank you so much, Big Cheese. Um, we love you, and you can check out that tier and all the other tiers by going to, again, patreon.com slash cultpodcast. Um, if you want to send me a toilet made ac- out of actual toilet paper, which is something that I pitched earlier and seems like the only uh, good finale for Andrea's art installation... <laughs> um if you want to send me a toilet made out of toilet paper the ultimate outhouse if you will um then you can send that to me on twitter and instagram at mondo does stuff that's m-a-n-d-o does stuff uh if you want to send me instances of religious people not being aware of a double entendre in either name or image 
Uh, please Search signs are the best for that. Oh, my God. I love them so much. If you have any examples of that, it is my favorite thing. Please send it to me on all the things at Sundress Comic or at Andrea Gazetta on Instagram. And yeah, I'd love to see that. Please send them, please. First of all, big shout out to Kat and Mel Brasley, who got married this weekend. Oh, congratulations, this, this past Paris. week. Congrats, congrats. Very, very happy for y'all. Congratulations. Um, if you want to send me adorable pictures from your wedding. <laughs> oh, my God, yes. Aww. You can send them to at Paige Wesley on Twitter or at Rampage Wesley on Instagram. Uh, also still accepting bread recipes always. Oh, forever. yeah. Forever and always. If you want to send us um, your interpretation of a shepherd's rod, uh, it has to be some form of art. It doesn't have to be drawing or painting, but it can't be your penis with a sheep tap taped to it. Um, if you want to send us your interpretation artistically of a shepherd's rod, you can send that to us on Instagram at Colt Podcast. Or on Twitter at Colt Podcast Show. By the way, I'm just picturing a shepherd in a race car bed like mm. a hot rod oh so there's an option for you as well what i was picturing is a man whose penis has the exact texture of wood grain <laughs> i'm picturing the man with the wood dick in the hot rod car and now i want both of them combined oh. um what if it's just a shepherd who's also a skin car? Oh, come on. No, I just I got skin like car it. out of my nightmares. Why'd you have to go and do that? <laughs> Imagine the smell. Oh, no. If you want to send us uh, uh, if you want to send us a written description very graphically of what you think uh, a shepherd's rod is, you can email it to us at coltpodcastshow at gmail.com. Or if you want to send us actual rods that you've turned out of wood or something, you could send those to 3756 West Avenue 40, Suite K, number 237, like, like the, the shining. shining, Los Angeles, California, 90065. And I think for this one, I'm going to say don't... Don't drink expired food. Like, I know that's the <laughs> early part of the episode, but, like, don't do that. <laughs> And also, don't drink the Kool-Aid. Bye. Bye. Hey, I got some expiring MREs. You guys want to have a buffet of gross? <laughs> yeah. No, thank you. I'm fine with my rod. <laughs> <laughs>